Hello, and welcome to Mindframe, where shift happens, where we talk to people who have experienced extreme circumstances and have overcome them and had a shift in perception that allows them to live happier lives. My name is Robert Solomon, and I'm your host. I'm not a mental health professional. However, I have experienced quite a bit of mental health struggle and I have a lot of mental health issues in my family. This podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional help, but a place where people can come and listen to an inspiring triumph of the spirit stories. All our episodes are recorded via Zoom, so please excuse any audio issues. In today's episode, we're talking to Rena, a doctor who found herself in the ER at seven months pregnant and experienced a complete shift, which led her to become an advocate to change the way doctors and patients interact. I am really honored to have you here. You are my first best-selling author, and I read your book right away when I knew that there was a possibility that you would come on the show, and it really was riveting, and I can't believe all that you went through, and I'm totally blown away by your spirit and your persistence, and what you're doing is amazing for not only doctor patients, but for doctors as well. So thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Thank you. I'm I'm super excited to be talking to you. So how's your family? How's your health? Everyone's good. My health is reasonably good. I haven't been hospitalized or had surgery in almost a year. I gave myself an award yesterday, a little medal that said still alive. I love that you did that, but obviously it's incredibly emotional. I mean, just what you went through was so insane. Do you mind if we just get right into it and kind of you can walk us through what went down on that crazy day? Sure. I had just finished my pulmonary and critical care fellowship, which is the end of training after all the medical school, all the residency, the many years. And I was seven months pregnant at the end of my training. And I was out for a celebratory dinner with my best friend. And I had this excruciating onset of right-sided abdominal pain that was unlike anything I had ever experienced before. I didn't know what it was. Like my doctor brain was trying to go through a differential of what the possibilities were. Did you think your appendix burst or something like that? Everything I thought of like that, I knew inherently was not true because whatever it was, I knew it was killing me faster than that thing would. I couldn't think of a single thing that aligned with what was happening in my body. And so we got my husband, he drove us a hundred miles an hour down to my hospital, Henry Ford. And I felt like my job was like, get to the door of the ER. I knew what I had was some sort of intra-abdominal catastrophe and that if I could have surgery, maybe they could fix whatever it was. Okay. So you're in the car. Mm-hmm. Did you focus on staying alive at that moment? A hundred percent. I knew okay. that was my only job. Like my See, only job. I just job. got the chills because that moment you made a choice. You weren't just a passive person on this vessel to the hospital. No, it was very much like you do your part now and you'll be able to hand this off, but you've got to do your part. It's insane to me that you could have that power and thought. 
And my science brain, you know, goes into, well, of course it's a stress response and you're channeling adrenaline and like, that's all really useful in a situation where you're bleeding. And so you have acuity and clarity of thought, and I can understand the mechanism behind that, but the impulse is really coming from a bodily awareness, not a cognitive. But when we got to the ED, we were met by a security guard who triaged me in a different direction. He was like, oh no, you're a pregnant lady. You have to go to L&D. And I remember looking at my husband with a look that was just like, just so you know, for later, that's the decision that killed me. Like now I'm going to die. And that's why. And so I went to labor and delivery. And from there, they got labs. They did the things that happened in triage. I got an IV place. They got the surgeon to come. They debated whether it was safe to do a CAT scan. Again, I knew in my body, if they sent me for a CAT scan, I would die down there. But everyone was really worried about the baby. And Mm -hmm. so... They sent the resident over to check on the baby and I had trained an ultrasound. And so I knew I was looking at a baby that didn't have a heartbeat. And that was a moment of like collapse. I can't even imagine. So they rushed me into the operating room for emergency surgery and I was crashing. My blood pressure was falling. Everyone around me was panicked because I didn't have adequate access for the blood transfusions I needed. And I heard the anesthesiologist say, we're losing her. She's circling the drain. Wow. And it sort of rallied this sense in me of like, you better figure out if that's true. And so as I tried to assess whether it was true, I found that I could see myself. You know, I could see myself on the table. I could see the team that was getting ready to operate on me. And I remember thinking, if I can see myself, I'm probably already lost. And then I had this sense, you know, I felt very small but also expansive. Like I was part of everything, but also very detached. I wasn't particularly worried about the outcome. Like I was like, there's this thing that's happening, but I'm bigger than all of this now. So was that like a level of peace kind of that was over you? Total peace, total complete sense of just transfiguration into something else. And I knew, like the words weren't there, but the thing that I knew was I can choose to go back to what's happening down there with all the pain and no guarantee that that pain will ever go away. Or I can go away from it in this other direction. I get to choose right now. And I don't remember choosing. I just remember being very aware of the choice and then, you know, waking up in the ICU aware that I had made the choice to go back to my body. Sorry, in that moment, when you're like aware of the the choice, were you thinking of any people in your life or any reasons to stay or to leave? Or was it just flat? I can go A or B. I was very disconnected from any other people or bodies or, you know, concrete objects that existed, it felt like a choice between re-entering my body or leaving it permanently. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't any logic about it. There weren't any words. It was just a sense that I had moved into a different place and I would have to choose to move back if I was going to move back. But it was also incredibly peaceful. So let's just call that what it is. That's a near-death experience. For sure. That's an out-of-body experience. Mm-hmm. That's your soul or however, this is, these are my words and yeah. I, haven't, I haven't experienced it. So I would like you to kind of share your thoughts on it, but let's call it what it is. Like you're not in your body. So yeah. what is that? So what were you when you said there's all that peace? 
What do, what do you think that was? Soul is not the wrong word. You know, it felt like a sense of consciousness that was outside of my body. And I think soul is the word that we have for that, that sense of ourselves that's not necessarily tied to our physical being. I don't know in the moment that I would have used that description because even that feels reductive to me. Like it was such a visceral visceral is the wrong word because that's more tied to the body, but it really was transfigurative. Like I just felt as if I had changed confirmation. Like you were a different form. Yeah. And that form, were you like connected to everything or was it just your like blob of energy and then other blobs of energy? So it's really hard to explain because I felt light and weightless and buoyant even a sense that I was above everything and and weightless but I also felt small but I also felt expansive and connected to all of this different energy and waves and love and that was the first thing I wanted to tell people when I was removed from the ventilator and I could talk was I just felt like there is nothing to be afraid of. Like, I need you to know there's nothing to fear. That was the most peace I've ever felt. You know, everyone was just sort of focused on, I'm just really glad you came back and not really interested in unpacking the experience. And also (laughs) I was pretty high on morphine by then. But for me, that sense of peace, wholeness and integrity, despite my body not being a part of the experience is something that like I really treasure and I hold on to. Wow, that's amazing. I don't want that to inspire people (laughs) to go to that spot, but I've never spoken to someone who's had that experience. So for me, this is a turning point moment. Mm. I've read about it and it's fascinated me, but it's hard to believe when you haven't experienced it. And so to like actually have a person talking to me, not like a YouTube video (laughs) about it is really amazing. And I can see you're completely honest and not trying to make it anything other than it was. No. And I've gotten, you know, so many questions about like, did you see light? Was there like a tunnel? Did you see people who had died? Like none of those things happened. Mm -hmm. It was just this moment. And it's interesting how many people tried to explain it away in a scientific way. I went fearful. Yeah, it's easier to explain it away than to accept it. Would you compare it to being completely 100% in the present moment? I hadn't thought about it like that. That's really interesting. I did feel present, but I also had a sense of connectedness throughout time. So Mm -hmm. it's different than how I experience being exquisitely present if I'm doing yoga or really focused in a conversation. It had more of a sense of expansiveness than that one moment. Wow, that's so interesting. So it's like present, but aware. Yeah, yeah. It's really evocative in terms of like understanding what you're going through. Like you explained it very well. So what happened after that? When I came out of the operating room, I was still very close to death. I had lost all of my blood volume. It had been replaced multiple times. My kidneys had failed. My liver had failed. I had had a stroke. 
I was dependent on the ventilator to keep me alive. I was sicker than anyone I had ever cared for. And I had just lost this pregnancy. So I very much felt precarious. Like I didn't feel as if I was fully back. I felt like I was sort of visiting, but I still had this bodily awareness that I was probably going to die again in some way. And for context, a tumor had ruptured in my liver, and that was what caused me to bleed out. They couldn't see the tumor because when it ruptured, it essentially disappeared on all of the imaging. So they were operating under the assumption that I had this rare blood condition that happens sometimes in pregnancy that resolves with pregnancy. So if the pregnancy was done, I'd be fine. And my body was saying, we're not done here. And what I didn't know was that there was another tumor that hadn't burst yet that no one knew and couldn't see and was sort of just waiting. So those were non-malignant tumors, right? But the contents of the tumor is like acidy or something that just burns. The tumor is made of blood vessels. So when it bursts, it's like cutting your aorta. All of your blood can just leak out of these blood vessels. Oh, God. Super fun times. Yeah. So, okay. So let's just go slowly there. Any other moments from this period that we're talking about that really jump out at you in terms of shifts that you had that changed your perception of life? What was shocking, I went from walking into the hospital to not being able to stand, to not being able to put my own socks on, to not be intelligent, to not be mobile, to not be independent, to not be an expectant parent, to not be able to be disabled. Every sense that I had of myself, of my own identity was gone. And that was a real transformative moment for me. And it took me to a place that was very basic in the sense of like, all that is left is some essence of what I am. And that's where we'll build from. And I remember when I was discharged from the hospital, I had to go to my mom's house because we had stairs in our house and I couldn't even imagine being able to go upstairs. And I was sitting in sort of a lazy boy, which was the only way I could sit because I still had this large blood collection. And I looked outside and there was like a flower that was coming up in her backyard. It was like a little begonia, just like a yard flower. And I remember thinking, that's enough. The fact that there's that in the world, that there's a flower and that I'm here and that I'm seeing it that's enough. Like, why did I ever think I needed more than that? Illness is good in that way, in that it really simplifies things. It reduces you, you, right? It does. And in some ways that's terrible. And in some ways it makes everything more crystalline. You lose a lot of the bullshit and you don't worry about things that don't matter. And I can always tell when I'm well, because I start worrying about things that really I would never worry about when I'm sick. It's so backwards, isn't it? Yeah, like, it is. Why do we torment ourselves? Yeah. It's so ridiculous. It's but it, it's awesome. interesting that despite having that earth-shattering moment, we still backslide. Uh-huh. All we just are. It's this battle in our heads. Like you, you were reduced, right? Like you, everything you thought you were, you were no longer. So what is your importance? What is your value? And you found that little piece and you said, that's enough. And mm-hmm. I can build off it. But what you build off it isn't who you are. Nope. 
I try really hard to hold on to that sense of being enough. Also seeing myself reduced in that way allowed me to see others for their value that's just intrinsic. Mm. So regardless of the choices, regardless of the exterior facade, regardless of what's manifesting in the moment, you are just purely good under what's happened to you. Yeah. In the book, your husband is a big part of your support. And it seems like he was the perfect person to be there for you. He was always there when I woke up. He was just present. He understood that although he was suffering, that my suffering was different and that he couldn't try to occupy that suffering and he couldn't really impact it. He just had to be beside it. It's funny to think about, but in some ways, him knowing his own limitations of not being able to fix it actually fixed it because just being present for it without trying to fix it, it turns out is a really healing act of love to just say, I'm going to witness this with you. I'm going to sit with you. We're going to go through it together. I got nothing. I don't have any answers, but we're in this together. And if there are small things I can do to comfort you, I'm here for it. So that in many ways was more healing than what the teams could apply with their medical skills and their treatments. And it made me realize how often we devalue just attending to suffering. We think that we need to fix things to be of use when really our presence alone and our willingness to witness and not question someone's experience of it, not judge it, but just hold it, be a container for it that that in many ways is what we're here to do for each other. You know, we're all just walking each other home, that idea of... Beautiful. Yeah. That reminds me, like, I'm not an extremely religious person. I am spiritual, mm -hmm. and I feel like I'm a decent human being. But what you're talking about, it reminds me of two things. Number one, the power of unconditional love. But it also reminds me of something that I used to, I have in the past, I've made fun of it. It's like when people in a congregation ask everyone to pray for this person. When you're praying for someone, you're actually just giving them love. You're not trying to figure out a solution. You're just praying for their healing. And so it reminds me of what you went through in, in a weird way. Yeah, there are so many ways that we can hold each other up because healing has to happen from the inside out, right? Like no one can heal you per se. I think it's a very internal process, but you can create the conditions that allow for the alchemy of healing to occur in another person. You know, the conditions can be just right so that they feel that they have enough support and space and love to heal. And I remember the first time I took a shower, which was probably two weeks after that first night of looking in the mirror and just feeling like I was so disfigured. I was yellow from the liver failure. I had bruises. I had huge clots from lines and tons of staples up my abdomen. And I was just a mess. And I remember just being like, I look terrible. And him like not being able to even think that I look terrible, just being like, not to me, you don't like you're alive. Like he saw through all that. And he was like, if you had died, I would still be on the floor. Like, oh my you're God. fine. But how that's so 
amazing that he had that ability to give that to you. Because if he had some sort of look on his face that was like, yeah. Ooh, oh, I would have picked up on it. Demoralized you. Yeah, he just didn't ever see anything but how great it was that I was alive. Like, I love that. That's what someone needs. They just need love and they need support. More and- often than not, that's all anyone needs. And it's interesting because he didn't know he had done a good job. So it wasn't until I had started writing about it and I was letting him read early drafts. And I had just written the chapter where our son was born. And I wanted to share that with him. And he came back to me with tears in his eyes. He was like, I just, I never knew I did a good job. And I was like, oh my God, like you're the reason I'm alive. Like, of course you did a good job. But it it was so heartbreaking because we don't often tell caregivers what they contributed, right? We don't value it enough. We don't hold it up and say like, this was a good thing. And so for him not to feel that way until he read about it was really illuminating. However, after that really beautiful statement, he said, in fact, I look so good that if you ever do die, women are going to want to date me. (laughs) And I was like, I'm literally going to outlive you out of spite now. No one will ever date you because you're stuck. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's so great. I love that. And it is like, yes, you can be deep and, you know, emotional, but there's also humor that heals. Levity. And it sounds like that's a good, he's got a good blend. So if you look back to your relationships that you've had with other people in the past and that they've like worked out, then they didn't. And then you're with this person here. Mm-hmm. If you were with someone else, you might not be sitting here. Yes. So <laughs> I like to think about serendipity and serendipitous moments that occur in people's lives that help get them to where they need to be. And right now you're an advocate and you're creating change and you're making people look at medicine in a different way. Mm -hmm. It feels like the mission that you're on would not have happened if you didn't have your tumor and go into the hospital. Mm -hmm. That would not have happened if your husband wasn't who he was. There are so many things that led here. So talk about some of the things that are just so salient that like, oh my God, this happened. I thought it was like the worst fucking thing in the world. And then it got me to here. If you have any of those moments. Oh, a million. And serendipity, you know, what we call serendipity has really brought me a kind of faith that I didn't have before this because there were so many moments that had to go exactly the way that they went. One of the things that I've noticed through the last 10 years, and I've had probably 10 surgeries that were major and maybe eight ICU hospitalizations, is every time this happened, almost comedically, the same surgeon who was there the night that I got sick has been on call. I mean, it's a joke between us now. Like the last time I was hospitalized, I purposely texted another surgeon because I was like, I'm not going to bother him. This is crazy. And I got admitted and he walked in my room and he's like, I'm on call. I'm like, of course you're on call because you've saved my life so Mm -hmm. many times that now my body only gets sick when it knows that you're on call. That's really insane. I don't even know like 
what the chances would be, like how many surgeons, time of day, all that stuff. Like it's just- Vanishingly small to the point uh, of being absurd. One of the other um, things that we want to incorporate into this show is actually bringing significant people who were involved in turning point moments for people. So your husband obviously was there, that moment where you're looking in the mirror, seeing you under a critical lens, your husband's there telling you, I love you. And I'm so happy that you are you. And this physician or doctor um, who's constantly there, like this person has changed, given you some sort of hope, some sort of like belief that everything's going to be okay. Are there other people in your life that have been kind of around you uh, when other moments have happened? Yeah, definitely. I'm fortunate to have a mother who's incredibly supportive. And it was really interesting when we got pregnant again, and I was on bed rest because my uterus was threatening to rupture because nothing is simple. Um, <laughs> and, and she sort of would come to the hospital every day and do grandma things like knit at my bedside and bring in cookies and make tea. And it became this sort of space where the doctors would come after rounds to visit me, ostensibly to visit me, but they were coming for the tea and cookies. And they would share whatever was hard about that moment, you know, like whatever just happened on rounds, whatever the event was that was top of mind, it would just sort of come out because nothing was happening in my life, right? Like I was literally captive in my bed. I had no update day to day. So they were forced to sort of share. And it was really interesting because my mom would just listen. She's non-medical. She's a mom. And whatever they said, she would just, you know, hold them in unconditional positive regard and just say, wow. what you guys do is really hard. And it was so simple. Like it was so simple to have that reflected back to us an acknowledgement that what we did was really hard. It allowed us some distance from our own experience mm -hmm. and perspective and healing because it was really like, you're enough. I hear you beating yourself up over this case, but you're enough. And so they came back more and they told more stories and they had more tea and cookies um, but she's been that kind of a force of, you know, you're enough. That's so wonderful. Are there any other moments that you want to talk about that you had? Well, first of all, how did you meet your husband? We met in a very funny way. I had just moved back from New York. Um, I was coming here to do my fellowship training. I had just broken up with this guy that I was dating while I was in New York. And I went to a yoga class because we'd broken up and it was sort of like, let me regroup. And then I went to a bookstore because a book by my favorite author had just been released and I wanted to get it. And the bookstore that I went to didn't have it. And I went into this whole like stupid Midwest thing of like, of course they don't have it. It's like an actual book. No one reads here. And I hate everyone. I was very down on my choice to move back because it had ended this relationship and now they didn't have the book. And those were equivalent to me in that moment. And mm -hmm. I went to the coffee shop that was in the bookstore and I just thought I would read my textbook. And he was sitting at the table with the book that I had come for 
on his Come on. and to God. I honestly, I have to say people who are listening to this might say, this woman is a pathological liar. <laughs> I'm not creative enough. I wish I could make up my life. It would be so much easier. I would write it so differently. <laughs> and it's funny because I didn't even see him. Like I saw the book and he could have been a 90 year old man. Like it didn't even occur to me that there was a human. I was just like, is that your book? And he picked it up and he mocked me. He was like, Haruki Murakami? No, I don't want this Haruki Murakami book, who was my favorite author. And I was like, do you read? Because I was still really down on the Midwest. And I was trying to understand how someone couldn't want this book that was like really important to me in that moment. He was like, sure, I read. I'm reading you know, The World According to Garp right now. I'm like, oh, I read that in seventh grade. Like, nice to meet you. I'm going to take this and go. And then I realized how mean I'd been. So I went and bought him a different book and I brought it back. And I'm like, I'm really sorry. Like, thank you for the book. And he's like, well, if you're going to buy me a book, then let me take you to lunch. And I was like, no, because I watched Dateline and that's how people end up murdered. So I'm not going anywhere. Did you say that to him? Yeah. (laughs) And that's how it started. Well, okay. So what is the book? The book was Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami. It didn't end up being my favorite book, oddly enough, but it it got us together. You weren't going to tell me about how you met him. Hmm. And I'm talking about like serendipitous moments and like, it's so weird that he's in your life. The reality is that book story is so crazy. Yeah, it is. And you weren't going to tell me that. (laughs) Why? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, but we've other, been married a long time now. See those moments, it's like magic. It's insane to think about because it's just like insane to think about when someone's standing on a corner and a car goes by and gets hit by another car, and then that car bumps into them, and then they're not alive anymore. And you're like, that person could have made so many decisions oh, that would have been yeah. not put that person at that moment. So So I'll tell you probably the most serendipitous moment that I wouldn't have even thought about if you hadn't asked it in that way. So after my recovery and working really hard to get well again, I went back to work probably sooner than I should have. I was still really unwell, but I couldn't just be my only patient anymore. And so it was literally my first day as a grown-up doctor being an attending. And I went to the very first bed of my very first patient with my very first team. Everyone's standing at the first bed waiting for me to round. And they're acting really awkward. And all these thoughts are going through my head. Like maybe they heard what happened and they don't know if it's okay to talk about it. Maybe they don't know if I'm smart enough to do this. Maybe they doubt me. And I was just sort of strategizing how I was going to handle each of those different things. And then the resident started presenting and he starts presenting this case. And it's like 33-year-old woman, post-op day four, status post-crash C-section with fetal distress who has help syndrome. So this patient is literally me in a bed. My first patient on my first day back, she's jaundiced like I was from liver failure and her mom's at her bedside, smoothing her hair. And I realized that the team was acting incredibly awkward because they knew that this was going to be hard on me. And it was, it was incredibly hard because 
you know, when I was sick, I really believed that if my team just cared enough about me, that they could get me to health. And so I was putting this incredible pressure on myself. Like I have to care so much about her that I save her because I was saving myself essentially, right? Like the universe was Mm. putting me in a situation where I was going to have to save myself. And pretty much right from the beginning, it was clear that things were not going to go well for her. She had a side effect from the liver failure. It was swelling in her brain. And mm. so she she had really bad outcome prognostic mm. indicators from the beginning. And she went for surgery and she went off my unit. And I would still sit with the family every day and try to piece things together. But it was interesting, you know, when she died, because she did die right before Christmas, her family was still able to express so much gratitude for just my presence Mm -hmm. that was consistent and was able to be a container for their grief when everyone felt like, you know, they were just passing a potato back and forth to them of no one really being responsible or wanting to talk to them because they knew how bad the outcome was going to be. And I really felt like the universe put her in my path in that moment because there were still things I needed to learn. I needed, you know, I was just starting to sort of feel bad for myself for not having the baby. I was starting to feel pitiful a little bit. And and it was like this reminder of things could have been so different. And there are limits to the power of medicine. She's Mm -hmm. going to die regardless of what you do. And it just reminds you that you could have died, right? Oh, 100%. That was the lesson was like, Mm -hmm. shut up, stop complaining. You're alive. Don't don't continue to beat yourself down now. Wow. Um, So if you could uh, just... Let me know a little bit of um, the process that you went through for writing your book. Yeah, the process of writing the book was really interesting. By the time I started writing, I was probably nine years out from the first really critical hospitalization that started the whole series of events. And so I'd had time and perspective and had thought that I had assimilated some of the lessons into who I was. Um, recreating it for the page was really illuminating uh, in a hard way and in a good way. A lot of it was a process of discovery. It was excavating really memories and pressing on them to see what they could release that was new knowledge for me. Like this is an exercise essentially of like picking apart your trauma Mm -hmm. and really looking at it from like a granular level. And because you have the amazing um, experience of like double experience almost, like you went through it. So there's what you learned and what you experienced then. And then there's when you had to go back and really dig deep and unpack. And, you know, that's what people probably do with with uh, therapists if they have them or with their friends. But you did it with like a specific mission of creating the most authentic, real, powerful piece. And you're you're probably a little more vulnerable in that too, because you're not actually talking to someone. You're like going through, you're being your own psychologist, essentially. So I'd love to hear that process of maybe some of the moments that really, from the first time you experienced, you thought it was one thing. And when you actually went back and went through it, it maybe was another. Yes. So 
What your question brings up for me is that the moments that were the most challenging to revisit and view closely were the moments where I experienced a sense of shame. And so in the moment, I think shame is a hard thing to acknowledge. And it was really only in retrospect that I could look at that moment and say, I'm ashamed about that, why? And so the first instance of that, when I was in the triage bay, pregnant but hemorrhaging, and aware that something very bad was happening, but not really having an awareness of what it was. And the pain was so excruciating. And my mother and my husband were at my side. And I wanted pain relief more than I wanted a good outcome for the baby. And that's a shameful thing as a mother to admit that. I don't understand exactly why it was one or the other. Was it to alleviate the pain you were putting the baby in danger? Or... The amount of morphine that I required to even touch the pain was a level that would have suppressed the baby's ability to breathe if it right. was born. And so it was mm. this weird dance of how much do you want to worry about a baby that might not be viable even because it's so early mm -hmm. versus your own well-being. Right. And right. my suffering in that moment took priority for me. In the book, I framed it as I felt like I woke up and the house was on fire and I just had to get out and someone else was going to have to rescue the others because it was that feeling of self-preservation. Or is it normal to, you know, have a sense of self-preservation when you're in extremis and dying? Like, is that just a visceral animal reaction that I could release that guilt from? And so you're right. There are aspects of it that are very therapeutic, but it really requires putting a pretty harsh lens on yourself and not pretending that your motives were good because they weren't. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting when you say that because if things are wired correctly and we don't experience events that may change that wiring, mm -hmm. we're wired to survive. Mm -hmm. So in the end, you're getting into a moment where you're fight or flight and you have to make a choice. Mm -hmm. And sadly, Sometimes those choices may seem like selfish, but they're all for self-preservation. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to understand that and accept it while you're going through it. And especially when you say it out loud, like when you say, you know what, if I have to choose between my baby surviving and this pain ending, I'm going to have to say pain ending. Yeah. Like that's a really fucking hard thing to accept that you said. So I'm sorry you went through that. And then of course, deciding all of this while you're actively dying is a real mind fuck. And I think a lot of people in pain are like walking shame bots. Mm -hmm. I never even, that's the first time I've ever said shame it's bot. It's a good expression. And we are, we just hold all this fucking shame mm -hmm. and it affects everything that we do. Everything, every decision that we make, if you're holding all this shame in. Yeah. And so what you talked about is like releasing that shame of what you did. It must have like given you so much levity, no? Self-compassion is something that has been really important for my healing. And even on a very basic level of just learning to talk to myself like I would talk to a friend and not hold myself to unrealistic expectations, which when you can't meet that, 
and it's outside of your control, it can feel very demoralizing because, you know, we're so atomized as a society and as individuals, we really have started to believe that unless someone was there, they can't know what we experience, that our experience is so unique. And what I believe is that when we share with real vulnerability, that someone else can say, I may not have experienced what you experienced, but I too have experienced shame. I too have seen circumstances that have put me against the limits of my own compassion that have Mm -hmm. caused moral injury. And I stand with you in that feeling, even though our material circumstances are different. That's where I think we can start to see our oneness and our sameness in a way that as a society, we just haven't been able to do. It's so true. I mean, it's a a theme of like, you know, this whole podcast is basically designed for like, get to give people hope and to heal. And a big thing is what we're doing, which is talking about stuff (laughs) and being vulnerable. And I'm not trying to do anything to you, for you, anything. You're not doing anything to me, for me. I'm saying what I want. You're saying what you want. And we, what we connect on, we connect on what we don't, we don't, and someone else will connect on it. And it's just so, that's one of the messages that I'm really stressing is that you're not alone, man. Mm -hmm. Like you may think you are, and you may think that what you're going through is like the worst thing in the world, but chances are there's someone going through something worse somewhere. And you can talk, if you talk about it, then there's a chance that someone will be able to help you. If you keep it to yourself, if you keep that shame, if you keep that whatever it is to yourself, then the chances of you healing are very, very, um, what's the, why am I lost this word right now? Infantile. Minuscule. I like it. (laughs) Yeah, very, very minuscule. And um, so I'm hoping that, that, like you just said it so eloquently, you know, you said it so beautifully. And I really hope that that uh, resonates with people when they, uh, when they listen to this. So I'm making a point. Please allow this to maybe resonate with you. <laughs> Be vulnerable. Be vulnerable. It's okay. Be vulnerable to the right person. Yeah. You don't want to be hurt because obviously, you know, there's a chance. So do a little sleuthing to figure out who you can actually be vulnerable with, but mm-hmm. it's going to make a difference in your life. That is a rule for myself. I, I set up when I started talking about things in a vulnerable way with that, you know, I choose to share, but I choose to share only in a situation where I know that the other person's response won't be able to disrupt my healing. It's that idea of not, not showing the injury, but showing the scar, showing how you're healing from it. And if someone's response to you can disrupt your healing, then that's probably not a safe space to be sharing your trauma in this moment. It, it's really important to feel safe. And just because you make a mistake in opening up to the wrong person, it doesn't mean they're a bad person. They're just not ready and capable to help you. And I, I really hope that that doesn't change your motivation to find someone that you can open up to because obviously it's painful. Like it's just bringing more shame. 
<laughs> just yeah. like opening up about having this shame, yet someone shames you about opening up about having the shame. So it's a dangerous game for sure, but have you got to have faith and you got to keep doing it. And it's their lives, not you. And whatever their reaction to you is when you're opening up is not about you. It's about them. And that's okay. They live their lives. You live your lives. But find someone to comfort you. Um, so I know we've been talking for a long time. So I'll ask you the two questions that I like to ask everyone um, as my parting. And then if you have anything else you want to talk to, feel free to, to mention it. So when you think about your life, what are you most grateful for? Mm. I'm genuinely grateful for an awareness of my life, like being present for everything that's beautiful right from that moment of that flower that really just said to me, notice what's right here and don't ask for anything more than what you already have because it's enough. And that gratitude practice, that awareness that we're surrounded by beauty and we just have to show up for it that love is around us we just have to show up for it that's been really really meaningful to me i love that and this is related but basically if, if you were to hear that someone is going through extreme despair regardless of what it is what words of advice would you have for that person one thing I've learned through my experiences is that we're very bad judge of how temporal our experiences are, how fleeting they are, good and bad, and that whatever's happening in the moment will pass. You will feel different. And it's impossible to see that when you're in this sort of valley of despair, you don't have a clear line of sight into what's over the next hill, but there's always the next hill. And if you just stay on the train, the scenery changes. That's beautiful. That's yeah. If you can just stay alive. Yeah. This project was um, really started because of suicide. I have suicide in my family and I just wanted people to understand that if you get through this period, you have a chance to stay through it. Mm -hmm. And what you just said is, is exactly the sentiment. If you stay on the train, the scenery changes. That's amazing. Did you make that up or did you hear that from somewhere? I have no idea if I've heard it somewhere. It just feels true. Thank you so much for- Thank you um, so much. I loved our chat. Me um, too. I'm excited to see what you do with this project beyond me. Just in general, I think you're bringing so much good into the world. Thank you. And I'm so excited for you. Like I have no doubt that you are going to and are, you are, but you're going to revolutionize things in the medical industry. And I'm honored to have you take the time to chat with me. Of course, we're friends now. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, all right. Well, have a wonderful day. And um, I'm excited to read more of your stuff and hear more about what you're doing. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and are inspired by our guest. If you want to find out more about us, our guests, and some potentially helpful information that might speak to you at the moment, please visit our website at www.mindframeshift.podbean.com. 
www.thepodcast.com and check us out on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at MindFrameShift, all one word. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call the Crisis Support National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or text NAMI at 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor to receive free 24-7 crisis support via text message or call the NAMI Healthline at 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 6264 for free mental health information, referrals, and support. Thank you very much again for listening. And remember, shift happens.